Good evening, everyone. Tonight's class is titled, Misusing the Power to Procreate. In chapter 7, we're, we're at the end of chapter 7, we've been discussing how there is two levels of, there's four levels of klipa, but they can be broken up into two sections. You have this klipa, this external shell, which is gimel klipos hatameos, three types of completely impure um, shells that if you touch them you're going to be the energy is dragged down forever until Mashiach comes or you do Teshuvah out of great love to Hashem and then you have Klipas Noga you have this intermediate level of Klipa which depends on how you act depends on how you use it out that will affect what happens to just rephrase, if you, no matter what happens, if you ate something non-kosher, it's impure energy, and even if you use it out for a holy thing, the energy is asur, it's tied up. But if you ate something kosher, but for a negative reason, well that was mutar, was permitted, so all you need to do to go ahead and elevate that is a simple level of teshuva. That's where we're holding until now. And now, today, we're going to discuss two exceptions to these rules. We're going to show you one case where something is asur, it's prohibited, and nonetheless, you don't need Mashiach to come to elevate it. There's something much easier. And we're then going to discuss another case which is so bad that even if you do teshuva, me'ava, tshuva out of love, still it will not elevate the energy with it, there with it. To be able to really connect with our discussion tonight, a few introductions are necessary. According to the Torah, who has the responsibility to have children, man or woman? Yeah. Man. The responsibility is only on the man. Right, because women want to. Fair enough. Fair, fair enough. The question was, who has the mitzvah, the first mitzvah of the Torah to have children? Is that, a, is that a mitzvah on the man, a mitzvah on the woman, or both? And the answer is, it's a mitzvah on the man. When it comes to having a child, so the man has to do something proactive, and the woman has to be passive in the initial act of having a child. And this is very important in Kabbalah, we call it the mashpia. The man is called the mashpia, the person that gives. And the woman is called the mekabel, the person that receives. Mashpia and mekabel. And by the way, this will explain to us why there are times, of course, that, that even though a woman has had a relationship with a man, but nonetheless, the man will be held accountable and not the woman because the man was doing something proactive he was forcing someone else to have a relationship with him so again the man is the mashpia, he's the giver, the woman is the mekabal, she receives so today when we're going to discuss misusing the ability to procreate and the gravity of it, we're going to be focusing on the man in general, there is something called chatas neurim, 
or in the terms of halach, it's called zera levatala, and that is having an emission when a man has an emission without being together with his wife. It's a very serious thing. And let's look in quote number 18, please. Quote number 18. Rabbi Eliezer said, Whoever holds the part of his body and he, from where he goes to the bathroom while he's make, making water, it's as though he had brought a flood on the world. This means he didn't have, he's just going to the bathroom. So Halacha says that when a man goes to the bathroom, he shouldn't hold the area. Why? Because he may make it hot, and if he makes it hot, God forbid, he could have an emission. Why all these precautions? Because otherwise, one might emit semen in vain. And Rabbi Yechanan said, whoever emits semen in vain deserves death. For it is said in Scripture, and the thing which he did was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he slew him also. Does anyone know where this is a reference to? Yehuda had three children. His oldest two were Er Ve'oinan. Er Ve'oinan married a, married, well, the oldest child married a, married a woman. He didn't want her to become pregnant. And he wasted his oh, seed. Right. Oh, he died. Yeah. He then, she then, then married the second child. The same thing repeated itself and he died. So from here we see, the Gemara says, from this story we see that someone who does this in vain deserves death. Very serious. Similarly we learn that it stops the redemption. And in Tanya we're going to focus on a little bit what happens spiritually. What are the spiritual effects of this? And then we're going to go ahead and show how even though it is so serious, but the, the method of rectification is much easier than any other sin. Let's see this inside and we'll take questions afterwards. Before we go inside, I want to say one, one detail. In general, there are certain Jews that place great focus on this. Anyone ever heard of the famous Rabbi Nachman? Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, a lot of his books focus on this sin. There are many communities which they fast three fasts a year as a rectification for this. And nonetheless, it is our custom in Chabad to not really even discuss it. We don't discuss this. Not, we don't, of course, we don't do these three fasts, Bahab, but similarly, we don't even discuss it. And the reason being, because discussing it itself could, God forbid, cause someone to make this happen. Just thinking about it, being on your mind. And unfortunately, a few, about 40 years ago, the Rebbe came and he said that in today's society, where there are people that are, not only they are not saying that this is not, not only are they not saying it's bad, but there are doctors today coming and saying it's a very healthy thing. So therefore, unfortunately, today we do need to be able to talk about this openly and publicly. But again, it's not something that we generally talk at great length about. So let's look inside in the Tanya, and at the end, if there's any questions, we'll certainly be happy to answer them. 
We're in the paragraph yet in your handout. It's on page number four. In the Tanya, in the red Tanya, it's on page 30, right hand column, bottom paragraph. Yet, although we said that some, something that was asur, something that was forbidden, is trapped until Mashiach comes, or you do teshuva, repentance out of great love, yet the vitality which is in the drops of semen that issue wastefully, even though it has been degraded and incorporated in the three unclean klipot, that means something prohibited has happened, and therefore the energy has been degraded into the three unclean klipot. Nevertheless, it can ascend from there by means of true repentance and intense kavanah during the recital of, of the Shema at bedtime. When someone goes to sleep, we know we say the Shema. And that Shema, if you focus on the simple meaning of the words, so that itself is a method of elevating the energy that has been lost by this act. It's very simple to elevate the lost energy. As is known from our master, Rabbi Isaac Luria. Who's Rabbi Isaac Luria? Ari. The Ariza of blessed memory. And is implied in the Talmudic saying, the Talmud shares with us, that he who recites the Shema at bedtime as if he held a double-edged sword. If someone says the Shema before they go to sleep, they're holding a double-edged sword. Let's see, quote 19. Rabbi Yitzchak said, whoever recites the Shema at his bedtime before going to sleep is considered as though he holds a double-edged sword in his hand. Rashi says, to ward off the forces of evil. So saying Shema, you're holding the sword, you're going to remove all klipa, and this klipa, this unclean energy, is a reference to the energy that was caused by this act. We're with to slay the bodies back in the Tanya through focusing at Shema. You slay the bodies of the extraneous forces that have become garments for the vitality which is in the drops of semen so that this vitality may ascend as is known to those who are familiar with esoteric wisdom. So the method of purification is much simpler. We just need to go ahead and focus on the words of Shema and repent. The wording of the Rav Shneir Zalman is true repentance, which means to say you're not going to do it again. Meaning repentance, <coughs> the definition of repentance according to Torah, is to say that you won't do something again. By saying that I'm I repent doesn't mean anything. If you go ahead and say that I will not do this again, that is teshuva. Therefore, so now, based on this knowledge, that although this sin is tremendous, but nonetheless, the method of rectification is much simpler than other sins, now we could explain a big question. In, on Yom Kippur, by Mincha, the holiest time of year, we read the most random Torah portion. The holiest time of year, what Torah portion do we read? Anyone? Mm -hmm. What? Jonah. 
That's the maftir. That's the half Torah, I mean. But what is the Torah portion? The Torah portion is who you can marry and who you cannot marry. On Yom Kippur, what do we mention? That a man shouldn't marry his mother, his sister. Seemingly on Yom Kippur, you should be reading the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. Honor your mother. This is what we're talking about on Yom Kippur. And not only on Yom Kippur, at the end of Yom Kippur, the highest time. But yes, this is what we talk about. For many reasons. One of them, on a very basic level, the commentators say, you know why? Because not everyone always comes to Shul. Yom Kippur, they're at Shul. And unfortunately, we have to talk about very simple, plain and basic stuff. When you talk to someone, don't get caught up in the esoteric aspects. Make sure they understand that you're not allowed to kill, you're not allowed to steal, and who you're allowed to marry, who you're not allowed to marry. But in this, air, in this section of who you should marry and who, you're, who you cannot marry, in other words, who you're allowed to have a relationship with, there's no mention of the sin of wasteful emission, which seemingly belongs there. In this section of talking about who you can't marry, it should belong right there. So why, does it, why is it not there? Because the method of rectification is so much easier. If someone had a relationship with a person he wasn't, they weren't allowed, as we're going to soon learn, they're in big... I don't want to say they're... As we'll soon learn, they've created something. Just being together, we know according to Kabbalah, whether or not a child is born from every union, every time a couple is together, they're creating spiritual energy, spiritual souls. Every time. But unfortunately, the same thing will be if there was a union that was not allowed. They've also created energy. So therefore, when there's a union, we'll talk about momentarily, that's hard to do proper teshuva for. But for this sin alone, you just need to do, say you won't do it again, and focus in the words of Shema, and you could rectify it. Let's see it inside. Therefore... The sin of wasteful emission of semen is not mentioned in the Torah among the list of forbidden relations. Why? And now listen to this. This sin is so serious. Is it quoted here? No, it's not quoted here, but the Zohar says this causes a spiritual flood. The flood of Noah. Spiritual flood is caused by this. Not only that, let's look in the words of the Tanya. This sin is even more, is even greater than having a forbidden relation. Because of the enormity and abundance of the uncleanliness and of the klipot, which are created and multiplied to an exceedingly great extent through wasteful emission of semen, even more than through forbidden relations. That means this causes a greater amount of impurity than having a relationship with an inappropriate person. So if that's so, when you're talking about who you're not allowed to marry, also say this, it's even greater. Except that in the case of forbidden relations, he contributes strength and vitality to a most unclean klipa. 
from which he is powerless to bring up the vitality by means of repentance. Meaning, when someone has had a relationship with a, per, with a, when a man has had a relationship with a woman, so at that point, it's not a, he may be creating a smaller amount of klipa, because we said that this sin creates a tremendous amount. The amount may be smaller, but the klipa is much greater. So we have over here the quality and the quantity. The quantity of this sin is tremendous, but the seriousness of it, the quality, is not so serious. The seriousness, the, the amount, the quality created by having a relationship that is not allowed, the, qu- the quantity is smaller, but the quality is much bigger. And it is impo- you do not have the, the man does not have the power to rectify this sin unless he repents with such great love that his willful wrongs are transformed into merits. Unless he does a tremendous amount of teshuva. So in summary, on the one hand, each one of an inappropriate relationship and the topic at hand, each one of them have a stringency. One of them has causes more klipa, but the other one causes less, but causes a, a deeper klipa. A deeper negative energy is brought into this world. So here we have an exception to the rule. We've mentioned in the previous class that as long as someone goes ahead and does teshuva me'ava rabba, he does, he repents to Hashem out of great love. So no matter what he did, he could elevate that energy. But here we have an exception that even without that, there is one sin that even without this tremendous teshuva, as long as you say, I won't do it again and focus at Shema, you could elevate that energy. On the other hand, we're now going to learn something where you cannot elevate the energy. And that is going to be if someone had a child in a relationship that was not allowed according to the Torah. In such a case, there's a child here. That child, unfortunately, is a mamzer. If a child was born from a relationship that's not allowed, that child is called is called a bastard. It's a mamzer. And so your repentance won't help right now. In this world, there's, there's energy that, that shouldn't be here. From, and that is the exception. Although we said that doing tremendous repentance could fix it, here we're saying even tre- if someone had a child they weren't allowed to, treme- then repentance alone won't help. From the above, last paragraph of chapter 7, from the above, one may understand the comment of our sages, which is a fault that cannot be rectified. Having an inappropriate relationship and giving birth, birth to a bastard. For in such a case, even though the sinner undertakes such great repentance, he cannot cause the newly created vitality to ascend to Hashem holiness, since it has already descended into this world and been clothed in a body of flesh and blood. So repentance alone is not going to do it. You know, they say, saying sorry is not enough. Sometimes there were things that happened that 
there's an issue at hand. A any questions? Let's, let's talk a moment about why it is that the second, if there's a child from this union we could understand, that there's a physical entity here that is stopping the repentance because there is an entity here that according to the Torah should not have been created. We have an issue here. So the entity... Yes. Sorry, go ahead. The entity is not the physical child. The physical child. Yes. So that is the entity. Unfortunately, that child is... There is a child that is here and the child is going to have a tough life. Yeah, yeah. A mamzer, the Torah tells us, the only person that they're allowed to marry is another mamzer. Right. It's a, it's, it's, that child is in a very, very tough spot. Sorry, yes? Is there, is there anything that a child can do to change their status? No. Nothing in their power? It's not their fault, but there's nothing they could do. The monster is always a product of an incestuous relationship? Or? It has to be specific. It has to be one that the Torah itself did not allow. Right? Right. Meaning if it's from the rabbis, certain people, the rabbis say you shouldn't marry. That wouldn't create the halachic, the, the highest level of a monster. I'm sorry, there are certain people that the, the rabbis came along and said you shouldn't marry them. Although the non -Jew, the I mean, a non-Jew, the Torah says you shouldn't marry. Right. Right. So that would be also producing. Well, no, that would it depend. It would either produce a non-Jew or a Jew. That's a different scenario, because well, the so non-Jew. If the woman is Jewish, then the child will be Jewish. The child will not be. Yes, it's a it's an interesting uh, observation that the child from a non-Jew, a woman that had a child from a non-Jew, is a perfect child. A child that is, may have two Jewish parents, unfortunately, if they, the Torah said not to marry, that's trouble. Yeah. Sorry, one, just one second, I had a question here. Yeah. Oh, I answered it, yes. What is the state of the moms or after Moshiach? Say it again. state of the moms or after Moshiach. Fantastic question. I don't know. That's a good question. His question is, what will happen to this child when Mashiach comes? Will he be, become an, an, a normal Jew? I don't know the answer. It's a great question. You know, I want to say something. The Torah is not nice and dandy. It's a mistake people make. The Torah is fair. The Torah is Torah's emes. The Torah of truth. Truth is not fun. Truth is not politically correct. <laughs> I want to share with you a very tragic story. I have a friend, a Kohen. If a Kohen, if a, if a Kohen's wife even had a forced relationship with someone else, she can't remain married to her husband. That's what the Torah says. Hmm. My friend's mother, unfortunately, an intruder came into the house and uh, tried to hurt her and she fought him. She knew she's in trouble and, and he killed her and she died. It's a very tragic story. 
Um, it happened in 1992. Um, and the Rebbe spoke a lot about it. A tragic, horrific story. The only reason I bring it up is because the Torah has laws. And so, yes, we're talking now about a mamzer. It's a, it's a very sad subject. It's a very sad subject. But that doesn't always mean that there are simple methods to, to fix things up. So back, back to, the topic, to the topic at hand. Yes? No, not at all. Not at all. It's a very simple thing. Hashem gave us the power to be partners with Him. The only place in the world that man and woman partner with Hashem is in the creation of a child. Hashem says that that is the holiest act in the world. Do you know the Zohar says, well, I, I want to talk about this in a moment because it will tell you. The Zohar says that the moment of a union of a husband and wife is Shmona Esrei. It's Shmona Esrei. And there's many similarities. There's not a lot to be talking at that time. It's Shmona Esrei. It's the highest and greatest thing that a, that a Jew could do. The lowest thing is to waste this tremendous power that you were given. The godly power that you were given. Does that make sense? <coughs> The Rambam in Hilchos Deos talks about it at length. And, it, and, and from a medical perspective, the Rambam says that the vitality of a man is in his seed. And if he wastes it, he loses his life. He physically loses his strength. What the Rambam says in Hilchos Deos. Did we miss the ending of the story, unfortunately, of the wife that was... That's the ending. Oh, she died. But what... So, I, I was like what happened to yeah, is he not allowed to remarry as a Kohen? Like, no, he's allowed to remarry. Right. He could marry someone else. Right. That that he could marry someone else that wasn't married before. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So why is it that if there was a relationship between a man and woman and no child was born? What is so serious about that? We're saying that the sin of wasteful emission, it's serious, but it's not, it's not so serious. But however, if there's been a relationship between a man and woman, all of a sudden it's very serious. What is the difference if there's a woman involved or not? How does that affect the discussion at hand? And this goes back to what we mentioned earlier, that a man is called the mashpia, the one that gives. A woman is called the mikabal, the person that receives. The second, if there's no mikabal, there's no receiver here, so all that needs to happen is you need to take this wasted energy and elevate it to God. But the second, that, that, that the energy has been received, so now it's been asur, it's been tied up. The receiver has tied it up. And therefore, it cannot go up unless you do the method which we mentioned earlier, Teshuvah Me'ahava Rabba. Teshuvah out of tremendous love and the details we discussed last week. So again, if it's just, if 
there was no receiver so then the energy is loose and it could be elevated easier. The second there's been this receiver, it's much harder to elevate it to God. Let's see that the note in the end of chapter 7. Note. The reason being, the reason that if there's been a re in, uh, forbidden relationship, all of a sudden it's very hard to elevate, is being that this vitality has been absorbed by the female element of the klipa, which receives and absorbs the vitality from the holiness. It's locked up. It's been put inside of something. Not so with the wasteful emission of semen, where there is obviously no female element of klipa, and only its powers and forces provide the garments for the vitality of the wasteful semen, as is known to those familiar with the esoteric wisdom. So, as long as there's been no receiver, it's easier for it to be elevated. So let's summarize what we've discussed, and then we'll try and summarize where we're holding in Tanya and put it all together. We've discussed that there are two exceptions to this general rule of thumb, that something forbidden either needs Mashiach or Teshuvah Me'ava Rabbah. The two exceptions are a wasteful emission, which it's easier to elevate, or a mamzer, which it's much harder to elevate. That's a summary of what we've discussed today. Where are we holding in the chain of Tanya? We, dis we started off discussing the five types of people. The tzaddik, the tzaddik that is good for him, the tzaddik that is bad for him, the intermediate, the rasha that is good for him, the rasha that is bad for him. We continued on talking about the animalistic soul. We moved on discussing the godly soul, the tensifi wrote, the three garments of the soul. We mentioned how the garments affect us. And then we started moving on to a new area and explaining how the godly soul and animalistic soul both are complete entities and they're fighting against each other. And that is where we are holding right now that we've said that there is there is bad energy in this world, the Gimel Klipos Atameos. And then there is intermediate energy, the Klipas Noga, and dependent, how we use it out. If we use it out for good intention or bad intention, that is what will happen to the godly energy inside of it. This is where we're holding at this point. Yes, David? There is also, a, <clears throat> although it doesn't state it here, a Kabbalistic inference of the relationship God with Israel and it is most obvious in the case of Shabbos but it is there and um, when one gets into Kabbalah it's discussed the relationship of God as uh, a, a male force and Israel as a female force and what God gives to us yes according to Kabbalah Hashem is called the man, and we are called the woman. We receive the Torah from Hashem, yes. And, and, it, and it, it evidences itself in Shabbos. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, okay, are there any other questions? No. Okay, so maybe we'll discuss something else for the next 10 minutes. We'll conclude here. Um, I, we will not have class for the next three weeks. We will continue in, in four weeks. Thank God I am going to a wedding and a bar mitzvah. And I'll be out of town, so I look forward to continuing then.
Let's discuss for a moment. Is there anything anyone any anything anyone wants to discuss? Okay. Since you mentioned Please. that's unrelated. Yeah, absolutely. That someone asked me this. Someone yes. who's non-Jewish. Yes. Said you 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 go to these uh, talks with the rabbi. Maybe he can answer this question. So this is after the mass shooting. Yeah. Why is it easier to hate than it is to love? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> you got 10 minutes, go. Oh, I, I, it's a good question. Why is it easier to hate than to love? I, I just want to ask you, who said it's easier? In history, people are always killing each other rather than committing acts of love. There's always wars and torture and terrible things happening. Shootings, mass shootings, uh, you know. I mean, look around you at the world today. There's many questions that could be asked about that, but if you're asking about why it's easier to hate than to love, one of the thoughts that come to mind is that naturally we want to be in charge. Naturally, it's hard to get along with people. That, you know, naturally, we all, Hashem says that man was created with the with the interest to be dominant. And uh, oftentimes, if we look at the history of fights, that's where it all started. One person wasn't able to work with another, and it, and it, and it went on from there. So there's two types of fights. There's, there's a fight that happens because two people can't get along, and there's another ideological fight. And fights that happen because of philosophy, because of ideology, because of the worst is when you blame it on God, you're, never, you're not going to be able to solve those. If someone says the Crusaders, they were doing it officially in the name of God. If you look inside the Spanish Inquisition, if we look throughout history, the worst, the worst experiences that happened were all in the name of God. Too, Correct, exactly, exactly. So, you ask, why is it easier to hate? I don't know the answer. There's also an element of self-hatred. What? There's also the element of self-hatred. Self-hatred. That's also true. Pe like, some of the other I like try to think of parallels that are in the Torah. Okay. So, uh, the, the children of Adam... Uh, what happened there? Cain uh, killed Abel. Out of jealousy. Out of right. jealousy. Jealousy, right. Then, then you go on a little bit and you've got um, uh, you got Sarah and Hagar. I don't know if you'd call that hate. That was also jealousy. Jealousy. One, okay. one had a child, another didn't have a child. And they got murder. Yosef was also jealousy. Yaakov and Esau. Yaakov and Esau was more than jealousy. Yaakov and Esau was a fight. Mm -hmm. yeah. Fight for dominance. Okay. You got yeah. Amalek. Amalek. Occurring multiple times. Yes. These are good. These are interesting examples. You know, yeah, though. You've got, yeah. you got the Moragul. You're good. He's <laughs> very good. Um, I think we focus on the bad things because they're more visible. Love is a quiet 
thing. I mean, unless you're holding hands and sucking face in public, yeah, and kissing, kissing. Well, that's, yeah, we got that's an old line. I'm old. Um, that was from a movie. No, I mean, well, I, it turns I not think. To make headlines like I, yeah, I think love is quieter, more private. And that's a good observation. I was in Bend for this past Shabbos, and over there they shared with me that there was a talk show, there was a news station in Israel that they decided no matter what happens, five minutes a day, the last five minutes is going to be good news. That's good. And they had, they were able to track the people listening, and the la those last five minutes, everyone turned it off. Really? Ah. They weren't interested. Oh my goodness. They weren't interested. That's the only time I turn it off. It's like, it's like uh, Dennis Prager and his uh, Friday uh, happiness hour. Which is so boring. There you go. Since this is the last five minutes of class, and you are attending the wedding of your brother and a bar mitzvah of a member of your family, we should all say collectively to you, Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov. Thank you. We'll call our socks 